today we're talking about rebellion and how that is an idol to, to many of us. And in fact, sometimes we don't understand it. And when we think of rebellion, we think of big stuff like, you know, uh, getting on a Harley and riding around and, you know, whatever. We think of uh, doing things against society, that sort of stuff. Although riding a Harley isn't against society, I don't mean that. But I, I think of Rebel Without a Cause, that movie, and, and, and it's, okay, so I, I'm rebellious. And I know it in my heart, and I, I've seen it all my life. Uh, it's not just something other people do. You know, we're rebellious in our hearts. When, when I went to college out of high school, so I was, I was 18 years old, we went to Liberty University. I, I went with six of my friends from my home church. So there were seven of us there and um, that knew one another, a lot of us there, but there were seven of us that knew each other. And Liberty University used to have, and I don't know what they have now, but they had a ton of rules and uh, the rules were something like this. You had to wear a shirt and a tie and um, not blue jeans to class. You uh, could only wear blue. This is college, by the way. Uh, you could only wear blue jeans on Saturday. Um, church attendance and chapel, everyday chapel, was mandatory. They would check it. They did room checks every day. You had to make your bed up every day. You want to know how you get out of that? You sleep on top of the covers. Uh, so... Uh, and, and that's the whole thing. I mean, it was like, okay, what's the rule? How do I break it? What's the rule? How do I get around it? There was a rule about how long your hair could be. It had to be over your ears and off your collar. That was the rule. And so just to be a little bit rebellious, I let it grow over my ear and I tucked it behind, you know, because nobody's the boss of me. Ain't nobody telling me what to do. And, and, and that was just, it was like really, really stupid stuff. And we heard about other universities that were more more strict. We heard about Tennessee Temple. We heard about Bob Jones. You know, we heard about these. We thought they were just a myth. You know, there's nothing that could be worse than this. And as dumb as those little rules breaking, it was like my first semester, my job was how many rules can I break and not get caught? That, that was kind of how I looked at it. And so I understand rebellion. Now, there's a verse, and Jesus said there's truth, and you can know the truth, and there's a source of truth. And he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus said, you don't have to live in rebellion. There is truth, and Jesus is the source of truth. But truth is, rebellion is in our genes. Look at what it says. We, we looked at this verse two, three weeks ago. Genesis 3.1, this is Satan tempting Eve, and he says to the woman... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? By the way, that's not exactly what God said. There was a certain tree. But you notice how Satan whispers in our ears, Hey, does God really have your best interest at heart? Can you really trust him? Because that's what rebellion is. Rebellion is saying, I don't really trust the authority. In fact, the definition of rebellion is an opposition to authority. In this case, it's the opposition to God's authority. Now, look at Eve's response. Uh, God had said, don't eat of the, this particular tree. Uh, Satan said, did he say you can't eat from any tree? And, and she says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God said, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. God didn't say that, by the way. Or you will die. He didn't say that either. Uh, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat uh, from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And then look what happens. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is sin, rebellion started with Eve. You know, really, it's Eve's fault. We have to just admit. But, but here's what Romans says about that. When Adam sinned, not when Eve sinned, when Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And, and you see it, you see rebellion every place. I was at Lowe's yesterday, and I was just, I was getting a couple things. I was ready, I was heading to the checkout line, and there was a kid, I don't know how old he was, um, six or seven, and he was yelling at his dad because his dad wouldn't buy him a bucket. What's a seven-year-old need with a bucket? I mean, you know, you got to think about it. Now, here's the, the truth of the matter is, the dad knew what was best. Seven-year-olds don't need buckets. And yet the, the kid was yelling at his dad. It, it was, we see these little pictures of rebellion all the time. And honestly, it's just in the genes. And I see it in myself, and I see it in my kids. And look, I, I've got great kids, but even great kids sometimes rebel. The second thing we notice about a rebellion is it's insidious, and I chose that word because it means to proceed in a gradual, subtle, harmful way. It's subtle, it's gradual, but it's harmful. We're kind of going down the, the slope, and it's, it's negative. Now, uh, uh, let me read the verse. The time will come when people will not listen to the truth. They'll look for teachers who will tell them only what they want to hear. They'll not listen to the truth. Instead, they'll listen to the stories made up by men. And see, when we're in the middle of rebellion, what we want somebody to say is, your rebellion is okay with God. And we want to find somebody, maybe a religious authority of some sort, that will say, your rebellion is okay with God. Because we, we don't really want to think we're rebellious. We would just like God to endorse our rebellion. And sometimes we're in rebellion and we don't even know it. Let me tell you the story about this guy named Christopher Viatafa. It's this guy right here, Christopher Viatafa. He was doing something called ego surfing. That's when you get online and you put your name in and you see what people are saying about you, right? Now, you can only do this if your name is Viatafa. Uh, if your name is Chris Roberts, um, there's about a billion Chris Robertses, so really, this does no good. Uh, Mark King, are you in here? Mark, I mean, how many Mark Kings are there? A billion? There's a lot of Mark Kings. But Vlad Sabot, Vlad could do it, and how many of there are you? One? There's two. Is there two? Are there two? Who else would name their kid that? Uh, no. Oh, so. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> So it's called ego surfing. It's a call, and, and so this guy was ego surfing, and he found himself on North California, Northern California's most wanted list. Uh, I mean, can you imagine? You're looking up your name, and it's kind of an uncommon name, and there you are. And he, evidently, he had, it's just a minor, you know, he had taken a gun to a party and shot it. And, and so he didn't think there was anything bad about that. Evidently, there are other people that thought it was not a good idea. So um, he turned himself in and all that, but he was on this list and didn't know it. And the point is, sometimes we're rebellious and we don't even realize it. It's insidious. It sort of, it kind of gets, it's like a seed. It's like, 
I don't know if you noticed this, but our parking lot, there are some cracks in the parking lot. If you, if you haven't noticed, they're out there. Now when you walk out, you'll notice it. And in the cracks, little seeds get in there somehow. And every time it rains, weeds will grow in the cracks. Every time. Without exception. I, I spray those weeds, and when it rains, guess what? There are more weeds. It's like, it's like sin in our lives. So if we let rebellion get a hold of us, it's like seeds in the crack of our hearts. And all of a sudden, it's just there. We don't know where it comes from sometimes, but there it is. The third thing, and this is what's important. When, our, when we rebel, it separates us from God. And it says in Isaiah, your sin separates you from God. The Lord sees your sin and he turns away from you. And that word separate, when I think of separate, when, when do you really feel the most desperate when you, when you lose something? For, for me, it's like when I, when I can't find my phone, right? You, you feel that? Like you can't find your phone, you get kind of desperate, and you're looking every place you know to look, and you can't find it. And then uh, the, the worst one ever, so you'll, I'll say, Miriam, call my phone for me. The worst one ever was I was on the phone talking to Miriam and said, Honey, i, I got to hang up. I can't find my phone. She should have just let me hang up and find my phone. You know what she did? You know what she had the audacity to do? You mean the phone you're talking on right now? See, that's just... Not really nice. She shouldn't do that. See, she's got sin. Uh, that's what that is. That's rebellion. Really, what it is. But when the verse says that our sin separates us from God, I, I get the picture in my mind. If you've ever seen the movie Taken, with Liam Neeson and his daughter gets taken, as a dad with daughters, don't ever watch that. Uh, but uh, uh, I know I've been like it at a store, Target or something, and, and all of a sudden I look down and I can't find you know, my, my daughter, whichever one was with me at the time, and I can't find them. And when they're little, you, you don't, you, they've wandered somewhere. And it's that feeling of separation. I don't know where she is, and I need to know where she is. I've lost my child. And I get all Liam Neeson on everybody, you know, and I'm like, I'm looking around running because that's the feeling of this word. Now, the bottom line is this. We rebel because we don't trust that God has our best interest at heart. We rebel because we don't trust that God has our best interest at heart. And, and the truth of the matter is, it, when we trust Him, it eliminates rebellion. Look what it says in the Scripture. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't depend on your own understanding. Seek His ways in all you do, and He'll show you the path to take. He wants to lead us, but we have to trust Him. And I said it a few weeks ago. I know God has my best interest in art when I look at the cross. The cross changes everything. And so really, if you want to eliminate rebellion in your life, you have to get to a place where you say, I, I trust. I trust. In a few months, I get to do a wedding for a young couple, and they're fun to talk to, and every wedding is, is fun. Um, and, and weddings, you know, I've got daughters, so weddings are a lot about the venue and and the dress, oh my word, the dress. They have a show about this. And, and uh, it's a big deal about the catering and the time of year and blah, 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 blah. And uh, the, one of my favorite wedding stories, I was doing a wedding outside um, in Michigan. And it was August, I don't know, October. It was, it was kind of toward the fall. And it was going to be, um, it was a beautiful setting. There's a creek and the creek kind of ran, and it made a little, kind of a little 
Peninsula, and, and it goes out here. And so here, this little spot, kind of in the creek. So the creek is beside you, behind you. They had an arbor, and they had um, they had gone to home, uh, Hobby Lobby and bought a bunch of fake uh, leaves, you know, foliage to decorate the arbor. And um, so I'm standing there, and, and we do the rehearsal. And the next day, it's calling for rain. And so when you have an outdoor wedding, this is a good, uh, just a rule of thumb. This is an aside, really, has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. But when you do an outdoor wedding, you need to have a rain plan, right? So I said, what's our rain plan? And they said, the rain plan is we're going to do it here. It's like, well, okay, then we're going to get rained on. Yeah, that's, that's what we're saying. Okay, okay. So the day of, it's drizzly to the point of drippy. You know, it's not just sort of misty, it's drizzly. So I'm thinking, this is... <laughs> This is a mess. This is going to be a mess. I wore a black raincoat with a hood. I looked like a druid. You know, I was like a, a, a druid. It was, it was horrible. And the whole time I'm kind of leaning over trying to keep my Bible from getting wet. And the, the processional comes in and, and the, the beautiful bride in her white dress. And, and he has a white tux on. And he's standing under the, the, ar- the arbor, right? And, and I'm reading something and I look up and he's got red on his white tux. And the, if I'm lying, I'm dying. The first thing I thought of was, somebody just shot this dude. Uh, he got shot. Where is her dad? I, that's the first thing I thought. And then the second thing I thought was, he deserved it. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sure he... Well, the leaves were dripping on his white rented tux. Um, so don't ever do that. Anyway, um... I tell you that for no good reason, and I didn't even tell the first service, but it just seemed funny to me. Okay. When you're doing a wedding, you're making a vow. And sometimes we talk about the covenant of marriage. A covenant is something more than just a promise. It is, it's like a promise on steroids. It, it is uber important. And in a wedding, you have vows. Do you take this woman... For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, we, we say these things, right? We ask them to repeat these things. And this is such an important event that we invite people to watch. We want spectators because we're making a covenant. We're making a vow that says, I'm going to commit to you forever and ever. And remember, we used to say, and we don't do this in weddings anymore, but, but there used to be this question, if there's anyone here who knows of any cause that this man should not be married to this woman or wed to this woman... Uh, Speak now or forever hold your peace. And then you always kind of had that pregnant pause. You're waiting for somebody to, I mean, what are they going to say? Um, you know, she's a, uh, she's a gangster. You know, it never, it never happened. We don't even say it anymore. It only happens in movies now. And they'll say it and then, you know, somebody will stand up and say, Sandra Bullock, I'll marry that other guy. And, and that's kind of how that works. But, but what we're saying in a wedding What we're committing to, the question is, that we're asking and answering, hopefully, is can I trust the person I'm getting married to? Can I trust them? And when you're you're a kid, I don't know if you all ever did this, but when we were a kid, we we had a little little oath. And we would say something like, cross my heart, hope to die, what's the rest of it? Stick a needle in my eye. How gross is that? I mean, how gruesome. Well... What we were saying is if we don't keep our commitment, we wish ill upon ourselves. And as a kid, you don't know what you're doing, and we do that sort of thing. 
But God loves to make an oath, a commitment, a covenant with his people. He loves it. And the first one he ever made a covenant with was a guy named Abram. And and look at how this goes down in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I'll show you. And I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. And I'll bless those who bless you and, and I'll curse those who curse you. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. And God is saying to Abram, listen, I've chosen you. You're going to be my guy. And then um, it's, this, it's this language of covenants. It's the language of I'm going to do what um, I say I'm going to do. Now, look at Abram's response. He says, Sovereign Lord, how can I know I will gain possession of it? You know what he's saying? He's saying, how can I know I can trust you? He's asking the trust question. God is asking, it's a big ask. He's asking him to leave his family and his place, and he's asking him to go do something he's never done. He's, he's not even telling him where he's going to go. I mean, God's asking him to do a great deal. He, it's uncertain. And so Abram says basically, How do I know I can trust you? Now, if I'm sovereign God, and by the way, sovereign means all-knowing. It means all in control. He's saying the right things. He's just asking the wrong question. How can I know I trust you? And if I'm God, God could have responded by saying, Well, Abram, how do I know I can trust you? I mean, I'm trustworthy. What I say goes. It it always has. It always will. I, I spoke the world into existence. You can trust me. If I'm God, I'm probably saying, Well, Abram, how do I know I can trust you? But God is so patient with us. So he says to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old. And Abram brought all these things to him, and they cut them in two and arranged halves opposite each other. And since we don't do this, let me tell you what is going on here. Because this is foreign to us. We don't do this. They would take these animals, and they would split them. They would would, uh, butcher them, and and they would... uh, kill them, and then split them in half. And they would lay the halves, kind of where the blood would run into a ditch. It's gruesome. I mean, it's just really gruesome. So they'd cut the, the calf in half, and then they would cut the, uh, the ram in half and the goat in half, and they would have these three animals. And you, if you can picture that, I mean, it's really gross to, to think about. And, and here they are, and, and there's this blood running into this ditch. And if you were going to make a covenant, the word literally in... in Hebrew means to cut the covenant. And where there's that level of commitment, where there's a covenant, there's always blood. And the idea was this. When you were walking the covenant, you would, you would speak openly, I commit to doing this in our agreement. And the other person would say, I agree to do this in our, in our covenant that we're about to make. And they would both walk through the blood as a sign that says... We're committed. And if we don't keep our word, may what happened to these animals happen to us. We don't do anything like that. But that's what they did. It's called an oath of mal, uh, uh, malediction. The oath of malediction. By the way, if you're going, um, uh, if you see your friends out this week and they say, hey, what happened at church? Because I know people ask you that all the time. Uh, what happened at church this week? You say, we learned uh, about the oath of malediction and they won't even know what you're talking about. You could really impress them. So you should do that. But all it means is we're making this covenant and we're wishing upon ourselves ill if we don't keep 
our word. And so God says to Abram, we're going to make this covenant walk. We're going to cut the covenants. And like I say, the only time you ever hear half-calf is when you go to Starbucks. And it's not the same thing. And so here we are. It's funny. I'm sorry. I don't care who you are. That's good stuff. And they cut the covenants. And both parties would walk through. Except in this case, that's not what happened. Now, they had other gods that they prayed to in that time. Not Abram, but other people would pray to gods. And there was always this idea that if I make a sacrifice, this God owes me. And so if you made a sacrifice to Ares, he was the god of war. And so what you were saying is if I go off to war, Mr. Ares, God Ares, I want you to give me success. Or if you gave an offering to Artemis, she was the goddess of fertility. You were saying I want my wife to be pregnant or I want my fields to grow. And I'm going to offer this, but then you owe me. And sometimes we pray, we expect you know, that God owes us. We kind of act like God owes us. Uh, you all know this story, but... You probably heard about the guy that he's praying one morning, he's driving to work, and he said, God, I really want a donut, but I want to make sure that's in your will. So I'm going to drive by the donut shop, and if there is a, a parking space in front of the donut shop, I know it's your will then to get a donut. And sixth time around, there was a space right, right in front. And God loves to make a covenant with his people. Now, Look what happens next. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And Abram's job, he cut the animals in half, and he laid them, and the, the blood is running into the ditch, and he's waiting for God. And his job is basically to keep all the wild animals away. And so if any wild animals were coming to, to, to steal this, by the way, eventually they would take this, this meat and they would barbecue it and have a big party. But until the covenant was made, you, you had to make sure nothing interfered with the animals. And then Abram falls into this sleep. And then this really weird thing happens. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant, cut a covenant with Abraham. Now, two things I want you to know about this. Fire in Scripture is often, if not always, symbolic of God. You see it all the time. Um, the burning bush with Moses. Uh, when Moses delivered the people out of Israel, he led them with a pillar of fire at night. I mean, it's nearly always about God. It's always symbolic of God. And uh, when uh, Elijah called down fire on his sacrifice on, on the top of the mountain, uh, it's symbolic of God. The second thing I want you to notice about this is only one entity, if, if, this, if the fire symbolizes God, only one entity walked the covenant, and it was God. And it's basically God saying to Abram, whether you keep your word or not, I'm going to keep my word. And only God walks the covenant here. And God loves to walk the covenant. He loves to cut the covenant with us. He did it with Moses. Look at what happens in Moses. Moses got up early the next morning. He had given them the Ten Commandments. Uh, he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and he set up 12 stones uh, pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sent young Israelite men and they sacrificed young bulls. And Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. And again, it's nothing like anything we ever do. And then look what happens next. Then he took the book. Moses took the book of the covenant. The covenant. Covenant and blood always go together. They just sacrificed animals. Always go together. And he read it to the people, and they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And the covenant was, God is saying, 
I will bless you if you'll do what I say and the people are saying we will do what you say. God is saying you can be my people if you obey and they're saying we will obey. And it's not grudgingly, they do it joyfully and it's again a symbol of, of, of the covenant. When people get married, they give a symbol of the covenant. They exchange rings. We say words, but we also exchange rings. Here, and this is just odd to us because we don't do things like this. It says that Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And I was going to do that today for us just to give you a visual. And then I thought, I really like my job. And I uh, don't want to do that because it's really dumb. But we live in a different world than they lived in. Look, those people weren't unaccustomed to seeing Animals butchered. I've never seen an animal butchered. I don't know what that looks like. I, I don't know. How, they, they were accustomed to seeing animals sacrificed. They were accustomed to seeing the blood run out of the animal. They, they were accustomed to this. This is the world in which they lived. And so when Leviticus says this, when Leviticus says the life of every living thing is in the blood, everybody understood it because that's how they lived, just kind of how it was. And we don't live in a world like that. We live in something... Uh, there's an author called Charles Taylor, and he says he calls this the buffered self. We live in a buffered world. We don't see the things that other generations saw. We, we don't, back in the day when you were born at home and you died at home, that's just how it was. And, and so a person would be born in a room, and they might die in the same room uh, 75 years later, and we didn't take them to hospice or we didn't take them to the hospital. That's just that's where they lived, and that's where they died. Life was in the blood, and people kind of understood that. And, and we forget what a bloody thing life is. Even the giving of birth, if, you ever, if you've ever seen a birth, I'd never seen it till our first child. It's like something out of a science fiction movie. I mean, it's, it is gross, and there's stuff. And then the second or third time, we've had so many kids I don't remember, but one of those children of ours... They decide, Miriam decides she's going to have an epidural, and, and if you've ever seen that deal, they, they stick a needle in her back, and, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, that, that, that looks painful, and I remember backing up to the wall, and I remember starting to slide down the wall, and I remember the doctor says, you should take a seat, and I did on the floor, because that's not something I'm used to. And I remember the baby was born, whichever one it was, and Miriam said, is everybody okay? And she said, uh, she said, the doctor said, yes, both your baby and your husband are pinking up quite nicely right now. Uh, I remember that. The life is in the blood. And every time there's a covenant, there was blood. And here's the problem with rebellion. God never didn't do what he said he was going to do. He always did. It's double negative, sorry. God always kept his end of the covenant. And people seem to always have a way of rebelling and not keeping their end of the covenant. And God would keep his end of the covenant and people would not keep their end of the covenant. And then God says this in Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people. A new covenant. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. And I just time out just for a second. Are you seeing the imagery here? 
It, it's, of a, it's of a father holding his child's hand. I'm not sure there's anything sweeter than a father walking with a child holding her hand, holding his hand. And, and, and God is saying, I'm, I was like that to you. And then he goes on, though I was a husband to them, uh, they broke the covenant, though I was a husband to them. And the picture that he's saying is, th- this is of, of a husband whose wife has been unfaithful. I was like a parent to you. I was like a husband to you. He uses this tender, intimate language. I was like that to you. And then you still rebelled. But there's going to be a new covenant. And the new covenant he's talking about came through his son, Jesus Christ. The other covenants were based on animal sacrifices, on the blood of animals. But then Jesus came. God in flesh. And he offered his life. And God sends his son. And again, the way I know that God has my best interest at heart is the cross. Because when I look at the cross, I say, you know what? He gave everything for me. And he made a covenant. And just like he did with Abram, he walked the covenant. He walked up to Calvary. The Bible tells us like a, like a lamb led to slaughter. It was the way Jesus, he walked the covenant. He offered himself for us. So today we're going to take communion. And we have to be, we should be reminded of the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Moses said, this is the covenant in the blood. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Covenant and blood always go together. Jesus used the same language that Moses used, except it was a new covenant and it wasn't just blood, it was his blood. So when we take the bread and when we take the drink, we're reminded of the sacrifice, the covenant that we've made with Christ. He keeps his end of the bargain by forgiving our sins, sacrificing for us. Our end of the bargain is we obey. So today we're going to take communion together. If you would, in just a second, we're going to hand out the bread. And if you would, just hold the bread until we all have it. And we'll, I'll say some words and we'll take it together. And we'll do the same thing with the cup. But be reminded, God has always wanted to be in covenant with you. He always wanted it. He wanted it to, he's always wanted it for his people. And so Jesus initiated the Lord's Supper to remind us that we're in covenant with him. That he loved us so much, he sacrificed for us. And we're reminded that because of that sacrifice, we have an obligation in this covenant to obey.